I think that one of the most famous stories about contemplation and action is the story of Mary and Martha. And it's a quite wonderful story and it sits alongside a couple of other stories that <coughs> tell us a great deal about belonging to one another and tell us a great deal about the milk of human kindness and also tell us a great deal about the complexity of our needs. So for very few of us a life of unbroken contemplation for very few of us that would be an appropriate calling. It is an appropriate calling for some but even in contemplative orders there, is, there are sort of three aspects to life, one of which is um, prayer, of course, contemplative prayer, which is benefiting our whole world because it literally changes the energy of what is around. I feel that very strongly. And those of you who've been into a place where prayer is regularly said or meditation is regularly held, will know that this literally changes the, the, the energy, the physical energy of a place. Uh, but those monks or nuns, whether they are Buddhist or Christian or of any other group, Sufi, um, they are also every day doing physical work because physical work is a profound invitation to contemplation. So you could call that contemplation in action. But remembering that I have said already, contemplation is itself an action. In fact, there's nothing we can do that is not an action. There's nothing that we can do. And what we really need to notice is what is the reaction to our actions and whether that's desirable. That's the big question, not of consciousness only, but also of conscience. Consciousness and conscience are joined. Yeah? Very much joined. That we can learn from what our conscience observes. And how do we learn it? Through raising our consciousness. So it's prayer... It's physical work, keeping, keeping life going, and it's also study. And for me, study is a profound form of contemplation. Maybe I like it a lot because it stimulates me, and maybe that's my addiction, is stimula being stimulated by, by thought. But it's also what inspires me, and what we draw from contemplation primarily is not just hope and not just connection, though hope and connection 
are powerful, but there's a trinity here. It's hope, connection, and inspiration. So when we contemplate a particular story to see that what we can learn from it, we are learning we are learning hope and we are experiencing inspiration. How have other human beings lived? And particularly, how have human beings lived who I think we can fairly safely regard as having a depth of understanding of the human condition that is out of the ordinary. And what we learn from that, or what I feel particularly drawn to learning and to honouring and to thinking about, is less the kind of theological finer points, which are always, I, I suspect, arguable, much more its conduct. So, so that's my, um, that's, that, that's what gives me, that's what gives me confidence. That's, that's when I know that I'm on solid ground. When it's, when it's feeding me with inspiration about conduct and when it's helping me in my self-healing around my own conduct. So, I want to tell you the story of these two girls who lived somewhere in what we probably think of as Israel or Palestine and who were looking probably much more like Sephardi Jews than Ashkenazi. In other words, they were Eastern Jewish. They were dark, they had long curly hair. They looked very much like my beautiful friend Kim Kunio, who is, um, uh, he's a marvelous musician and in the layout of Heavenly CD, you see uh, Kim, whose father came from um, Iraq. He was a Baghdadi Jew for many, many generations and Kim's mother who came from Burma, but was also a Sephardi, uh, Iraqi Jew. Uh, and this is the look that Mary and Martha surely had. And they were young girls still living with their brother, Lazarus, who himself had had a pretty s significant experience. Um, <laughs> but they weren't married yet. So they're young. They're really young. And somehow, word gets to them that this rather exceptional, small, dark, intense, passionate, opinionated, loving young man is coming to visit them. Again. Again. He's their friend, for heaven's sake. Just think of that. 
Then word also comes to them that he's arriving not on his own but with 72 followers. <laughs> well, this is a bit of a this is a bit of a challenge because we don't hear that Mary and Martha have a mother or aunties or you know, a whole retinue of people to help them. And I have to say that if somebody said, you know, Tignat Han's about to arrive and um, got 72 people with him and, you know, and I wasn't that experienced in the old loaves and fishes. <laughs> so, you know, this is, this is a challenging moment for these very young women. Because where are they welcoming him? They're welcoming him into their homes, but even more, and this is where we sit alongside them, they're welcoming him into their hearts, and they want their hearts to be ready. Yeah. They want their young inexperienced, beautiful, perfect, insecure hearts to be ready. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a certain village where a young woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Can you imagine that? She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he was saying. I wonder which of them was the older sister. I'm a younger sister. So I have a lot of sympathy with the younger sister. But I also have a lot of sympathy with the older sister because it's the older sister who is so often told, take care of this, don't worry me with that. You know, can you watch the baby? You know, bring in the washing. And so on, while the baby just sits and makes a fuss. So we can have a lot of empathy, which is a profound human quality, with both of those girls. All right, here they are. So it's Mary, whose name was probably Miriam, sitting at the feet of this very special friend, listening to what he's saying. So do we imagine that he came in and sat and began to teach? Or do we imagine that he came in and sat and he was simply present? Either way, he was teaching. And she was sitting close, close to his feet. And he'd walked a long way, sitting close to his feet, soaking him in. But Martha, the older sister, was very aware that 72 people had walked a long way 
dusty roads, probably no roadside cafes. <laughs> <laughs> and how was she to provide for them? She trusted Jesus enough and she trusted herself enough to be able to say, don't you care to Jesus? Don't you care that my sister has left all these tasks to me? I think she was completely justified. Somebody is fetching fetching, chopping, cooking, preparing, doing all those things for the meal that we will eat in a short time. We're not having to think about any of those tasks because at least 72 people have been in the trail from the, from the growing, from the nourishing, from the harvesting to the, all the stages until we put it in our mouths hardly thinking because we're thinking about something else. Yeah? So I have a lot of sympathy for Martha and I also understand Mary who knew that Jesus would be there for a few moments only and then he would be gone and would she ever see him again and oh my, she needed this. So Martha is aware of what the physical needs are of those who are guests. And in Judaism, as in Islam, hospitality is one of the pillars. Hospitality is a pillar of spiritual practice. It's one of the reasons that it is so disgraceful that we, in Australia, as a so-called you know, Christian-influenced country, offer no hospitality at all. All right, so then Martha says to Jesus, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her then to help me. <laughs> How interesting that is. Tell her to help me. We often pray like that, don't we? Well, I do. don't know about you. But I often pray that a different kind of telling will enter the mind of someone that I'm thinking about because my telling would be irrelevant. So sometimes we want <laughs> help. <laughs> So I think that's a very interesting dynamic right there, don't you? That Martha is not asking Mary herself because she knows how spellbound Mary is, that nothing would move her from that place unless Jesus himself said, oh, Mary, get on with it. You know, 72 people out there all waiting for a cup of water. But Jesus said something quite different to her. Martha, Martha. 
You know, Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese monk, always says, darling, like darling. And maybe Jesus said that too, and it just didn't make it into Luke. Um, Martha, darling, you are distracted by many things and worried about many things. Who isn't? Are we all worried and distracted by many things? There is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better path which shall not be taken from her. Okay. So at a superficial level, we can think this is a split between contemplation and action. We can think that the better path is the sitting, the being present to, and the listening. And in that moment, perhaps it was. That this was something that wouldn't come again. Whereas taking the cups of water out and dealing with all of that will come again or could come a little bit later. Yeah? In other words, this is a call also to a kind of subtlety in our thinking and most of all to a subtlety in the ordering of our thinking. It is not a call to divide the actions of hospitality from the action of contemplation. I think it's something much more subtle than that. That it is a call to be present to what is present in the present moment. And then the moment will change and something else can be present. It is very easy for us, I, it is very easy for all of us, I am absolutely in this too, to rush past the subtle, to rush past the apparently uneventful, to rush past the softening, the gentling, the absorbing, the receiving. Those are all actions, by the way. To absorb, to receive, to take in, to be nourished by. They are all actions that arise from contemplation. Are they not? Can you feel them in your bodies? We are so inclined, even with physical nourishment, to combine it with something else. Um, you know, reading or watching the telly or talking or even with physical nourishment. 
Never mind with spiritual nourishment. Let's just take a moment to be nourished by the moment. Just, just a moment. The final phrase here, which is also so very, very important, is Mary has chosen the better path which shall not be taken from her. In other words, what we gain from contemplation that is healing and wholesome that is healing us and through us is healing our world, what we gain cannot be lost. You know, there's that phrase, once you've seen some, sometimes there are things that once you've seen them, you can never unsee them. In the same way, it, it, consciousness is like that too. Once you have seen who and what you are, you can't, that can't be taken from you. That is actually what conversion means, the conversion of view from one state of consciousness to another. Yeah. So, so what, what can be gained from being in the presence of, of wisdom, not just in the physical presence of wisdom, but in the presence of the inspiration of wisdom or the inspiration of softening, or the inspiration of forgiveness, or the inspiration of connection, can't be taken from us. It be, why can't it be taken from us? Because it already belongs to us. It is already who we are. It is just waking us up. Yeah? Whereas many of the other things that we do are very transitory, because they belong in the realm of the manifest, the material, where we also live. But some of the things that belong to our eternal nature, to our soul nature, to our Buddha nature, whatever you call it, to our... When we, when we, when we illumine that aspect of ourselves, it truly can never be taken from us. Never be taken from us. Om Shanti. <laughs>